Good morning, church. How are you guys doing this morning? All right. That's about what I expected. Good, good. That was perfect. Um, my name is BJ Ferguson, and I'm the executive pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. And um, uh, as you may or may not know, uh, our our uh, lead pastor, Brandon Ziske, is actually on sabbatical right now. And so he is he is spending time focusing on on just a, a renewed love for Jesus and, and, and being refreshed. And I think what's amazing about this is that he's modeling a priority of Christ in our life. He's modeling for us what it looks like to put Christ above everything else, to be simply about Jesus, above what, what you're doing, what you're trying to accomplish, what, what you're serving. Jesus is paramount. And so I just want to invite you to, to continue to be praying for him. In fact, in, in the back, we've got like a... Uh, uh, cards that you could write, just encouragement notes. You could drop them in the basket or you can mail them to our office. Just want to invite you guys to do that. And <clears throat> as you see, the, we've started this uh, new series last week. Pastor Chad actually kicked us off and, and it's called Dark Matter. And we're, we're looking beyond the obvious. And um, <clears throat> it's in this time of Lent that, that we're trying to reflect on this. And, and, and Lent, historically speaking, is the 40 days le leading up to the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and it's a time in the church where, where we're able to look at what led, the, the events that led to that. And, and as believers, we know that it's not just the events that led to that, but it's also the sin that is in our world that actually led to Jesus' crucifixion. And so in this season, we're looking at, at, at this, this theme, dark matter, and um, and you could go back and listen to, to Pastor Chad's sermon, and he did a great job of kicking us off. But I just want to tell you, like, the, the idea behind this is that we see the effects that sin has in the world all around us. But there's, there, there might be something at play that's a little bit deeper that's not just outwardly focused, but inwardly focused. And, and the way that Pastor Chad uh, highlighted this was by looking at Genesis and he's talking about Adam and Eve and, and, and what happened in that moment where, where they sinned and, and what they did it kind of boils down to these two different points. The first one is that they question God's goodness and the second one is that they place their own wisdom, their own thoughts, their own ideas ahead of what's God. In, in essence, they were calling God a liar and wanting to claim to be God themselves of their own life. And so that's what led to, to, to the sin being in our world. And so um, instead of feeling satisfied with, with their relationship with God, like instead of choosing for themselves and it ending up going well for them, there was a result that Pastor Chad said happened on the other side of that. And, and it was two things. And I loved how Pastor Chad said it. it the first one was shame. Like we see Adam and Eve fall into shame and, and they were afraid and they covered themselves. And then as a good pastor does, he figures out a word to rhyme with that and he said blame. So it was shame then blame. Good job, Pastor Chad. It wasn't lame. Yeah, yeah. Your, your dad joke was, was not lame. You've got a really good dad joke game. Oh, uh, see what I did there? There it is. I'm, 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 so, I'm so embarrassed by that right there, just doing that. So like, thanks for the space for that, guys. Um, but guys, the idea that, that what came out was shame and blame, like, is indicative of, of what we see in our life. And so today we're going we're gonna to do something that's, that's going beyond what the root of sin was, which is what we saw there. And we're going 
we're going to actually take a deep dive. And, and, and as we're spending the season of Lent, reflecting on the sin in our life, we're asking God to just dig in. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, this, this, I'm going I'm to pry today. I'm going to dig in to your lives today. And as much as I want to be known as the fun pastor and like, yay, everything's great. Like today, I'm going to ask that you would give me permission to, to speak into your life. And I'm speaking directly to myself in here. That we're going to ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit, would you uproot some of the things in my life right now? Because as we see the depths of sin, what we're hoping for is that we will greater see the grace of Christ. Amen? We're going to ask God to bring this to the surface in hopes that we would see the sacrifice of Christ as being magnified. And it's going to culminate in, in actually taking communion, right? So if, I just invite you to be a part of that. And so we're going to look in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Um, and, and in the book of Romans, uh, Paul, who's the author of this book, is writing to the church in Rome, and, and he's basically kind of establishing his theology, and, and he's saying, hey, this is the world that God created, and this is how humanity, like, interacted with that. And then he's going to talk about the problem of sin in the world, and then he's going to see, he's going to show us how Jesus is the solution, right? And so, like, we're going to be, like, right smack dab in the middle of that, the problem of sin in the world, and so my prayer is that you would invite the Holy Spirit in right now, that you would invite the Holy Spirit, say, Holy Spirit, would you be with me in this moment and help me, help me see the areas that might not be honoring to you? And so that's my prayer for us today. So Romans 6, uh, 12 through 14 says this, it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been uh, brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. In these verses, we're, we're asking God to, to dig into our life, to show us what areas there, there might be that, that God wants to root out. And, and we're going to hope that the Holy Spirit does that. And I'm going to do that by asking you three questions. One is, where is sin controlling in your life? Uh, two is, where is sin entertained in your life? And three is, where is sin hiding in your life? And so let's highlight verse 12 again. And, and uh, it, it says, let not sin therefore reign. I don't know English very well, and so the order of those words is confusing to me. So I'm going to say, therefore, do not let sin reign, and I've been told that that means the same thing. So if y'all would just let me say that, do not let sin reign, that's going to be the phrase that I use. So thank you for your grace in that. I appreciate it. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Uh, to make you obey its passions. And so like, before we go deeper into that, I wanna, I have to bounce back to, to Genesis real quick and, and talk about what happened after 
Adam and Eve sinned. What happened in the world after that? And, and we know in the church it's called the, the fall. Like there was creation and then the fall of man, right? But, but what happened in that moment specifically was that humanity and the relationship that it had throughout the world was damaged. Like there were, there were actually four different relationships that were damaged when, when humans rejected God. When they said, I doubt your goodness, I can choose better, it damaged four relationships. One is the relationship that we have, humanity has, with nature. And we see that in, in the toil that has to come after that. The second one is, is man's relationship with, with other people, like our interaction. We see that in, in the, the dynamic between Adam and Eve, that, that there was going to be hostility. It was no longer a, a unified front. And then the next one is uh, our understanding, humanity's understanding of self. Like even when Adam was asked a direct question from God, Adam couldn't even give the direct answer. It was broken in him understanding why he even did the things that he did. But most obviously it was the relationship that we had with God. And, and this relationship that was broken with, with God is, is unique because God is unique, God is eternal. And when that relationship was damaged, it, it created a chasm within man, within humanity, that said that, that something is supposed to be in that spot that deserves great worship. And there's this, this hole within us that, that we strive to worship. And when that was removed, it created this vacuum that we would pull anything that we could find that we thought might fill it into that. And, and that was what we would call worship. Whatever we pull into that vacuum is going to create worship. And here it is. Whatever we worship controls us. Whatever we worship controls us. And so let's, let's bounce back to Romans. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And Paul uses this analogy of, of rain or or, or control, and, and, and reigning kind of goes into the, like king, like it's a kingdom. Do not let sin be your king. And, and what, what does a king do? King reigns and his subjects must obey. But it's not just an act of obedience, it actually, it, it actually talks about passions right, out, right after that. It says, to make you obey its passions. There, there is a part of our emotions that are even moved into Whatever we are worshiping, our, our passions follow that. We, 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 are, we are moved with our emotions into the action of obeying what sin says. So if, if sin is our master, if sin is our king, then what we are saying is God is not good and I know better. And if sin is our king, then God is not our king. And so how do we know if, how do we know if, if sin is, is, is ruling in us, if sin is our master, if sin is controlling us, well, then I think we have to look at, at the patterns that we have in our life. And, and we see this in Genesis, and I see this in my own life. It's this, it's like that thing over there, because I have this vacuum of something I want to worship, this, that thing looks good to me, that thing will make me happy, and I'm gonna go after that. And so like, this is, this is not a, 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 
I'm not, not groundbreaking here. This is like understanding. In fact, psychiatrists and sociologists have seen this throughout history. They call it dissatisfaction. Like humanity like pursues after these things thinking that it'll, it'll satisfy and it doesn't. And so like I have this one particular example in my life that, that I, I recognized as a child. And I, I always question like why is it like this? And um, for those of you who are near my age, and probably people that are, that are younger, um, you might understand this a little bit more. Uh, I'm part of the Zennial g- generation. It's that small window of time around the like, late 70s, early 80s, also known as the Oregon Trail generation, right? Okay, like we actually grew up with computers. Like computers were like our siblings and kept growing up and getting older and better, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, well, in, the only way I can describe it is in 1988, on December 25th, I received the greatest gift a human can receive, the Nintendo Entertainment System. Um, not the Super Nintendo, not the Nintendo 64, all you spoiled people, but the, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And man, I didn't even know how awesome life was until that showed up. And... Um, two years after that, after, you know, doing that thing where people that grew up in the 80s did, going to arcades, um, I played this game called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game, and then I found out that they were going to release a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade game on the NES, and my brain went into overdrive. I was like, that looks good to me. That will make me happy. I'm going after that. From that point, I was like, I got to scrounge up $39.99 to be able to buy that at Toys R Us. That was basically a million dollars to me. Like, um, and, and, and so I started, I mean, I did chores happily. I was like, what else can I do for you, mom? Anything? anything? I'll do anything for you. Whatever. Just give me money so I can buy the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Whatever. I would go to, I even thought about making my own lawn mowing business, but then I realized you had to buy a lawn mower and that was going to be more expensive than the game. So that like was out. Um, but I was, my efforts, I was counting pennies. I literally was putting them in those like little brown sleeve things. Like I was, I had, I had a, so anyway, I get to the point where I save up all this money and I'm like, yes, I get to go do it. And on the counter, I just drop this pile of dirty ones and fives, a whole mountain of quarters, and then like 10 rolls of these, like these, these uh, pennies. I don't even know what the guy's face looked like because I was so happy and enamored with this little box. I mean, I, I can only imagine he hated me on the other side of that, but I was looking at this box took it home, opened it up, pulled it out of the box, shoved it right in because you didn't have to blow on it when it was brand new. You didn't have to blow on it when it was brand new. It didn't have any dust in there. You just shoved it right in and pressed power and you were good to go. I turned it on and it was amazing. Like it was exactly like the arcade game and I played it nonstop for three weeks. And then I beat it twice. And then I was bored. I spent six months of my life driving towards this thing. And for three weeks, it satisfied. 
It did that for every video game I ever had. Every video game system I ever had. Like, I, I kept wondering as a kid, like, why do I get so bored of this already? And it's the same thing. It's, it looked awesome. That would make me happy. I need that. And we see this in our life a lot, right? But we're, we're more mature now, guys. That was like a 10-year-old version. That wasn't, that, we don't do that as adults. We've never thought that way about, like, iPhones, right? We've never thought that way about sports or, or teams or, or bands. Or like, we don't pursue after those things and, and think it'll make us happy. Well, when we were younger, like if you're in school right now, like we never did that with school. Like if we never said if, if we get the right grades or if I get a high enough rank in, in my class or if I get into the right college or if I pick from all these right colleges, what if I choose the wrong one? We study and we fight and we apply and we visit in hopes that it will satisfy us. We've never done this with people, right, guys? Like if we just meet the right person, if, if we could date that girl or just marry that guy or if we could just get into that inner circle of friends, then, then it would make us happy, right? Or, or maybe if I just had a better job or more money or a bigger house or went on more vacations or just had a better school for my kids or like could spend a lot of time with my grandkids, then I would be happy. Or even we can say that, if my church sang better songs or if it had better preaching, <clears throat> looking at you, Chad. <laughs> if anybody knows me, <laughs> you know who I'm talking about on that one. Uh, if, if we can say if we just had a ministry that I love, if we just worship the way that I like to worship, then I could be more committed. And hear me, I'm not saying that these things are all bad. I'm saying that we seek after these things that might not ever satisfy. And so there's two results that can happen. Let's just say best case scenario, you get the very thing that you're seeking after, right? You get the thing you're seeking after and it's, it, it satisfies. It's like, man, this is awesome for a while. But then something starts to creep in. I'm like, man, I, I want that, but more. Like, uh, maybe, maybe I want a different thing. Maybe I want something else. In the best case scenario, we're still left wanting something different. Well, let's flip it. What, what if we don't get that thing? Man, what if we don't get the thing that we've been pursuing after? And this is where I see the results of a lot of what Chad talked about last week. The first thing is shame. We feel like... I. Am I terrible? Am I a horrible person? Like, how can I not do this thing? How can I not make it to here? Like, or we blame. Like, you know whose fault this is? This is, this is this person's fault. They didn't let me do this. My boss didn't give me the promotion that I deserve. And we, and we say that because it, when we don't get the thing that we've been pursuing after, what shows up is, is shame and blame. See, humans, we've become incredibly talented at pursuing after and pouring our passions and our efforts and our imagination into these ideas that won't even come close to satisfying like we expect. You see, in either one of those two scenarios, whether we get it or we don't, what we are saying to God is that you are not good and my choices are better. 
This is the evidence of sin in all of our lives. And so how do we address that? Like Paul actually like kind of is, is building this argument in Romans, but it starts back in Genesis, and I'm just briefly going to go into it. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 21, when Adam and Eve are actually like have, have already like been, been receiving the, the kind of curses that come with, with rejecting God and they're on their way out, God does something unique. He actually, the first recorded death in the scriptures is actually a sacrifice that God makes of an animal to cover Adam and Eve so that they might continue to interact with him, right? That they might be able to interact with God. God actually killed the first thing. That's the first death recording in scripture. And this first act of sacrifice in this broken world opened the door for humanity to not just be pursuing after that that vacuum of sin, but he actually opened the door that he might be able to come in by, by fulfilling his promises. So let's fast forward back to Romans real quick. Here he's reminding us that, that, that they're in this world where sin has reigned, but God has now provided another sacrifice, a different sacrifice, not the sacrifice of an animal, but a perfect sacrifice in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect sacrifice that can cover all of sin, not just, not just the sin for temporary. It's not the sacrifice of an animal, but it's God's promised sacrifice. And that set humanity free to not have to pursue after sin. And that was a little hope. That was a, a, a little moment of hope. And, and you see that hope in this verse that, that we, we look at right here. It says, therefore, do not let sin reign. And that word let is a sign of hope. You see, because of the work of Jesus, Paul can encourage the believer to not let sin. And on the contrary, this is, this is, this is what it would mean not, that without Jesus, there is no let. Without Jesus and his sacrifice, sin reigns in the life of all who are without God. Whether we do that willfully or whether we do it without our knowing, all of our actions scream, my way is better than your way and you are not good. That is the root of sin. And I, I want to take a moment and just talk to the people that might not be followers of Jesus in this room. And I just want to ask one question for you to ponder. Just ponder this one question. Do you see this pattern in your life of seeking after something that would satisfy and eventually it, it doesn't any longer? So there's this book in the, in, in the scriptures that's kind of devoted to, to everything, like looking at all the things that man could pour his effort into and it's the book of Ecclesiastes and, and there's this one part in, in Chapter 3, verse 11, that says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. And this is talking about God. Also, He has put eternity into the hearts, uh, into man's heart. He has put eternity into man's heart. You see, when we seek to replace something that is meant for an eternal God, there's eternity is written in our hearts. When we seek anything else, anything else in the world, 
it is going to eventually let us down because everything else in the world is temporary. That is the vacuum that was created when sin entered the world and it destroyed our relationship with God. C.S. Lewis actually talked about this in, in, when he was describing his journey to be, be a follower of Jesus. And he said this, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, if this is where you are today, I invite you, I, just, I invite you to investigate what Jesus has to offer you. Now for all those that, that are followers of Jesus, like in here, we, Paul is saying, do not let, and I, and I want to, to like highlight what that let gives us the hope in, right? We, we have tasted the goodness of God. We have seen the goodness of God and known where it has delivered us from. And so when we let sin reign in our life, like we are inviting in the same thing that that was death before, that was temporary before, that was not satisfying before, because only an eternal God can satisfy an eternal appetite. Anything else will leave us wanting more. Everything that is sin reigning in your life as a believer is gonna lead to division, to isolation, and destruction. See, in the paragraphs preceding Verses 12, uh, 13, and 14, it actually um, is summarized like this. Consider yourself dead to sin, but alive in Christ. It is in this, in this sentence where we're dead to sin and alive in Christ that, that we find ourselves in a place where, where we can actually have the freedom to let Christ reign in our life and say no to the sin that is there. So I ask you right now, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, are there areas in your life where God is revealing to you that you are pursuing after sin? So the next question I want to ask is, is where is sin entertained in your life? And, and this is going to be going a little bit deeper. This is for the believer. If, as, as you have accepted Christ, as you know Christ, as he has set you free from, from sin and death. This is, this is for us, and I'm going to read this verse. Do not present yourself members to sin as instruments of, for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And in verse 13, we, we kind of see that there's this offering to unrighteousness, to sin. We're, we're offering up our, our members, which means our, our faculty, our our action, our body, our words, our thoughts, we're offering that up to sin. And, and then that would be, they would be instruments of unrighteousness or, and it's comparing it to offering ourselves to God and, and our body to him for instruments of righteousness. But I think what's intriguing about this is, is that as we look at the scriptures, like why didn't God eradicate sin in the life of the believer? If you look at the Bible, like, it is just, like, riddled with how all the, like, holy people are just terrible humans, right? Like, I mean, time and time again, you're like, uh, he lied and basically sold his wife into slavery, and he murdered a guy and then committed adultery, and, like, it's this laundry list of, 
like God's people continuing to fail. And it, from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to Peter to any instance in the church since, it is just a laundry list of broken and messed up people. So sin isn't eradicated in, in the life of a believer, clearly. But that's like somehow strangely comforting to me because I recognize how broken I am. And if God can continue to use broken people throughout the scriptures, then, then perhaps God can, can continue to use me. And so sin is not eradicated, but in verse 10 in chapter 6, it actually talks about the power of sin has been destroyed. But here in verse 12 and 13, like sin can be close enough to us, or we can come close enough to sin that we... We would dabble in it a little bit. Like it says that, that, that word, um, uh, I'm sorry, I lost it. It says, do not present your members. Do not present, to present something, you have to be close enough in proximity. Like, so the question here is, what would cause us to want to present ourselves to sin? We, we have the freedom and we know the goodness of God, but are we dabbling with sin? Are we close enough to consider, hey, what might we be missing out on? You see, this is the same temptation that Adam and Eve had. It was, th th they were asking the question like, hey, is, is God holding out on me? Is God keeping something from us? You know what, if, if I just had that, then I wouldn't even need God. If I just, we wouldn't say it like that in, in our culture, in our day and age. We'd probably say something a little bit more subtle. And something that actually our, our culture tells us all the time. Like, we would say, like, don't I deserve it? Like, man, I've been working really hard today. Like, don't I deserve this, this indulgence? You see, deserve is such an interesting concept. Like, our, our culture, like, speaks it in every commercial that you see. Like, you, like, you deserve this vacation. You deserve the, like, most expensive car like you deserve all these things and it, it is telling you that you're missing out right now. But there's this huge concept that just, it could have its own sermon on its own, but the scriptures clearly say what we deserve. In Genesis, God tells Adam and Eve that, that disobedience ends in you shall surely die. And in verse 23, it, it says that, that what is earned from, from someone that that has sinned is for the wages of sin is death. So then here in, in verse 13, we, we are destined to death because of our sinfulness. But in this verse, it says, present your, yourselves to God who, like you, have been brought from death to life. So we've, we've gone... We, we were at death, now we're at alive. So why then would we go back and present ourselves to death? Even more, presenting our, ourselves to sin, and it, it uses this, this interesting word, this, this, uh, it's like taking up arms. So this word instruments is actually translated as weapons or armor even uh, that we would to present ourselves to sin is actually declaring open war against God. That when we would dabble or, or like move towards temptation, that we would be taking open warfare against God. 
But God has released us from the slavery of that and he's invited us into something greater. Using that same imagery of, of like offering our, our members to sin for unrighteousness, he actually says, like, present yourselves to God and your members, your, your actions, your mind, your thoughts, your efforts, your, your whole being, offer them as instruments, as warfare for righteousness. That we have been invited into a grand battle from the one that rescued us from death to fight against the things that are unrighteous in this world, to fight on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. He's invited us into that. And he wants us to engage all of ourselves to do that. And so there are three ways that we can think about this, like to, to like process as we're digging deep, we're asking the Holy Spirit, God, God, would you reveal this in me? Would you, would you bring out any area in me that might need to come to the surface? And I want to ask this question. Are there obvious areas in your life where, where you were flirting with temptation, falling into temptation? Are these areas where, where you, you know that you kind of don't love about yourself, but, but you pursue them anyway? You can ignore the prompting of the Holy Spirit or say, hey, not right now, God. Like, this is my time. I can easily give in to, to anger or selfishness or lust or insecurity or escapism. And so as we process that, is that where, are we flirting with, with sin in that particular way? Or maybe something a little, little less obvious than that is, hey, am, am I actively engaging and presenting presenting myself to God as he makes warfare against unrighteousness? Am I, am I offering up all of myself to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to fight in this battle for, for you, God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer myself up to, to, to actually pursue the things of you on this planet. I'm going to worship you, and I'm going to make my life simply about you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help the way that we would say it in our church, that I'm simply about Jesus. I'm going to say I'm gonna, I want to help others meet, know, and follow him. Do I see that participating in my life? Because it says in this verse, it's like you can offer yourselves to sin, present yourself to sin, or you can present yourself to God. Are we presenting ourselves to God? My, my question is, if, if you are not, then might that be an area that God is calling out in you to say, hey, am I worth it? Right? And then the last one, this is, I think this is the most subtle of all. This is the one that, that I see in our culture so much and I, I've seen as I was doing youth ministry and I see now like, all right, what if I'm, I'm not actively engaging and pursuing temptation, but I'm also not actively like fighting for the kingdom of heaven. I'm not, not actively seeking ways to use my gifts and to glorify God. What if I'm just kind of like standing here just like trying to decide? When we're talking about the concept that, that God has delivered us from death to life, from, from, from dead to life, our indifference speaks volumes. Because we say the exact same thing that Adam and Eve said. I don't know if God is good. Our indifference moves us to that place where, where God might be trying to root out something in our life. 
Guys, as a means to show us this, not to make us feel shame, but to cause us to look to Christ. As John was saying as we were worshiping, to look to him, to say, like, his grace is greater now that I understand the depths in my life. So there's three things that we can use to evaluate. But I just wanted to kind of, like, put it even more bluntly, like just a couple of examples where you might find yourself being entertained by sin, like, or flirting with the idea of sin. Like, I, I, lo- I love the idea of just being like, like, oh man, I bumped into sin here at this party. Hey, it's been a long time since I've seen you. I didn't know you were going to be here. Hey, let's catch up. Let's go hang out right now. Like, I feel like we do that and it, and it happens in subtle ways. It's like, hey, you know what? I, I'm not actually actively like looking at things on the internet that I'm not supposed to. But you know what? I'm going to watch this new show on Netflix that I've heard really good things about that might have things that I probably shouldn't put in front of me. Or maybe it's, it's like, hey, I'm going to go scroll through those social platforms that I'm actually going to search up that one person that I really hate. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going like, to do a little judging in my own heart right now. Like, I'm going to just do that. Or, or, or maybe it's like, hey, I'm going to go accidentally bump into this person that I heard was going to be at this place, but they don't know I heard that they were going to be at this place. And so I'm going to show up and be like, oh, hey, you're here. And that person leads me into temptation. Guys, are we flirting with sin? Are we entertaining sin in our life? Because if we're doing that, we are in essence flirting with death. And God has delivered us from death to life. So the last one is, where is sin hiding? Verse 14 says this, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I'm going to read that again. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. See, this is not like a, a something that you allow or don't allow. This is not something you present or don't present. This is actually just a, a command. Sin does not, will not have dominion over you. This is the, for the believer. So like if we are children of God, then there is no escaping. This isn't a, a like, hey, uh, if I do this, then, then God's going to reject me or anything like that. This is, this is a relational deal. This is like help us to understand that. But because the believer can never be let go, it is not a salvation issue. It's a relationship issue. See, sin in any form is going to be damaging It's going to lead to division and isolation and destruction. And so, like, should we say that, like, the believer is to be without sin? No, the scriptures are clear. Like, like everyone has sin present. 1 John 1.8 says it. 1 Timothy 1.15 talks about about even even the the, the people in scriptures, they, they are like, hey, I'm the greatest of sinners. And I think that we, as 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 believers, as mature believers, maybe. We intellectually believe this, that we recognize that there are times that we might sin and we disobey God and we need to confess and and run to Jesus. And Jesus is faithful and he forgives us. But do we remember that sin will have no dominion? Like Like that's a call in us to go, God, I don't want there to be any area in my life. I want to reflect deeply on the things and say, hey, like, what are things that, that might go overlooked? What are the things that I might not even re- recognize as temptations or even uh, request accountability on? 
What are things that might be like good things, even the things that the Bible speaks of as good, that have taken the place of God? And in his book, Counterfeit Gods, and I highly recommend reading Counterfeit Gods if you haven't, Tim Keller uh, speaks about this thing and he calls it idols. And he says this, uh, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination than God. Anything you seek that can give you only what God can. And then later it says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Later in the same book, he goes on to say that, that the better the idol is, the, 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 the better it looks, the better it perceives, the, the, the closer it is to who God is, the more deceptive it is. And the sneakier it can be in our lives, the fact that we, we might even drift to a place where we wouldn't even see it as sin, and we wouldn't even know that we are worshiping a, a false God instead of the true God. And so as a means to help us process this, I'm going to invite you into this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask that the Holy Spirit, that you invite the Holy Spirit to, to examine your heart, and I'm doing the same thing in my heart as we do this. But I'm going to ask you a question that's going to go like, if you didn't have this thing that I say, is God still good in your life? If you didn't have this to fall back on, if you didn't have this, and I've got to be clear, you don't have a backup plan for this either. Like, you, you, you haven't created a safety net that allows you to like, ah, oh, like, so if I lost this, I could do this, and then that's control. I'm, I'm telling you, let, let, let's pretend that that control is off, like, like, that if you lost this thing and had no control and didn't have a way, to, is God still good in your life? And I want to wrestle with these things. And the first one is just a relationship. Is there a relationship in your life? A friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a, a spouse, a person that if, if they were to move away, if they were to leave you, if they were to dump you, if they were to reject you and speak ill of you, if they were to die, would we be able to say God is still good? Guys, and I'm, I'm not saying this because it's easy. I'm saying it like, what is the Holy Spirit drawing up right here? Like, what if, what if it's, I'm, I'm going to talk to kids in the room, like, uh, there was younger kids earlier, like, what if your video games got taken away from you? Like, not just today, but like tomorrow and for the rest of your life, and you're never able to play video games ever again, would God still be good? If God were to like, like somehow make your thumbs disappear and you couldn't play video games anymore, is God still good in your life? Like, what if... What if it was your house or your houses? What if it was your job, your finances, your security, everything that you've depended on in this world? If, if God were to take that away, would he still be good? Or what if outside of our control, 
that we didn't even have a government that allowed us to meet in freedom to worship God. And we were oppressed and we were pursued after and we were murdered or somebody thought different of us, would God still be good? Because we have brothers and sisters in Christ that are claiming that God is good in the midst of that. Maybe we could ask another question. When, when any of these things are addressed and, and we see articles or, or things that are brought up or we get into arguments with people, what, are, what do our emotions do? Where do our emotions go? Do we, do we go to self-pity and that shame or do we start blaming others and, and attacking others and getting angry? Where do our emotions go? And my guess is that if you trace that emotion back to the root, what we will find is an idol that we have placed in front of God. And I'm gonna, in an act of vulnerability and just kind of like letting you know a way that God's worked in my life is a story that happened uh, several years ago. Some, some friends of mine tragically lost a child that was six months old um, to SIDS, sudden in, infant death syndrome. And um, being a pastor, I, I was there, I was a part of the, the funeral service and, and I was with them and walking through them uh, through that process and it was just heart-wrenching. But during the service, um, as our, at most funeral services, there was a time of worship. There was a time where, where we were praising God for who he was and I, I look over and I see them over there and they are worshiping louder than anybody else in the room. And I lost it. I mean, I, I lost it in that moment. I'm supposed to be the pastor. I'm supposed to be the one that's like trusting in God in that moment and, and being there for them. And, and there they are saying, God is good right now. And what I had to process with then, and I still have to process with now, is I had to ask the question, God, if you were to take away my kids in my life, if you were to do that, would I be able to say that you are good? And the answer I had and still have sometimes today is no. And, and the saddest part to me is that I think most of the people in this room would be like, yeah, that's a right feeling. But I'm not saying eradicate that. I'm saying have I placed my kids in front of God? Have I, have I put their success, their identity, their affection for me ahead of God in my life. My kids are amazing. I love them so much. They are each unique and incredible, but they make terrible gods. <laughs> I'm just honest with you. They're so fickle. Gosh, man. As I see this whenever I discipline them, I see this and, I, and their feelings are hurt and they might be mad at me and I want to fix it and I don't follow through on the things, but it's God revealing to me that I have something more important than him. And I believe that in his kindness and his love and his affection and his grace for me, he's, he's calling me to something more. Guys, and I invite you, where are those areas that God might be rooting out in you to say, hey, this thing is not going to satisfy. Your soul was meant to be satisfied by one thing and one thing alone, and that's me. 
Guys, and the dangerous part is this, as we conclude, sin is deceptive. It hides in the deep places. We are so easily distracted and convinced by sin that we are right and that God is wrong and we justify ourselves. And so I hope that these questions of where am I controlled by sin, where am I entertained by sin, or where am I hiding uh, sin are helping you root that out. But I want to leave us with just the, the promise. And I know this isn't the, the highest upbeat, but, but the end of this, this verse here in 14 finishes like this. Since you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under law, but under grace. And you see, it's because of grace, the grace that's only found in the perfect plan of God, that through Jesus living a perfect life, being offered as the perfect sacrifice, being raised to life, that the hidden power of sin has been destroyed and that you have been set free and you are now able to let your heart's affection be, be poured out on God, that you are able to now pour out your members, your, the, the parts of your body and, and praise God and honor him and go to war with him in this world. And we can look deeply in our own hearts and say, God, nothing in here, let nothing in here be saying that you are not good. Sin will have no mastery over us. And so I invite you to, to process this in three ways. One, I want you to invite deep reflection. In deep, like asking the Holy Spirit to come in and, and transform your life. I invite that. I, I invite you to ask God to, to, to move in, but also invite friends and dear loved ones that want to see you pursuing after God. I invite you to get involved in groups. That's a place where in our church we can do that. So I invite you to be a part of that. Second one is move towards obedience. Just like you could offer your members to sin, you can also offer your members to God. Let's move towards discipline and saying, hey God, all of my affection is gonna be poured to you because I wanna go to battle with you. I want my instruments to fight that spiritual battle. I wanna see it in the way that we make disciples. And so how might you get involved in serving and caring for and investing in other people? It doesn't matter if it's at the uh, welcome desk or if it's in the youth ministry or children's ministry, I invite you to use your members as instruments of righteousness. And then the last one is this, repent with joy, that we can confess our sins to God, that we can confess our sins to one another, and that we can turn away from that and say, no longer will I pursue after the thing that I think satisfies. I'm only going to pursue after the thing that God says will satisfy. And so we repent in joy knowing that his grace is sufficient for us. And so here I'm going to close with a prayer. And, and a portion of that prayer is going to be in inviting God to search our hearts. And then after the prayer, we're actually going to take communion. And, and, and so if you wanted to go grab uh, some elements back there, you're, you're welcome to do that. But, but what communion is, is the reminder of us looking back. And, and, and going, what led to Jesus' crucifixion? What did it cost Jesus? Where, the sin in my life, what it cost him? And in this, I, I want you to say, God, would you root that out in me and help me remember what it cost your son Jesus? 
So as we close, let's invite the Holy Spirit. Lord, you are good. You were kind to us because you provided a perfect sacrifice. Lord, that though we were enemies, making open warfare against you, saying that you are bad and that we are good, you loved us enough and you gave us mercy and grace enough to invite us into your family. Lord, let us not run back to death. But God, we ask that you would look deep within us, that we would evaluate ourselves, that we would look within our own heart to the dark places, to beyond the obvious things, to the areas that you want to root out in us, that we might have a greater affection for you. So as your word says in Psalm 139, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, be here in this place. Amen. So we're going to take communion now. And, and during this time, this is, this is on you. This is in, as the Lord leads you, I'm just going to lead out. If God's still doing a work in your life right now, if God's still revealing stuff, I ask you to continue in that process. But let, let's let it, let's let the Holy Spirit root that out because this is just the model of what it cost Jesus. And so on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Let us ask the Holy Spirit to do his work.